So I want you to take a moment and think about what's causing you anxiety right now. What, what, what's making you feel anxious? Do you have it in your mind? My guess is that there's almost as many causes of anxiety this morning as there are people in this room. It might be uh, a medical test result that you're awaiting. It might be an exam that you're about to take at school. It might be big stuff like the, the coming election cycle or climate change. It might be something really personal, like a, like a bill that's come due and you're not sure how to pay it. It might be nothing more than the anxiety that comes from thinking about the social interaction you're going to have to have with the people around you after church is over. Lots of things cause anxiety. But I think all of them have something in common. They all have in common a, a future that is uncertain and that's not under our control. That's what really gets us. Now, with that anxiety in mind, think about how you'd feel right now if you knew now how that future was going to play out. I bet you feel some relief. You, you, you realize that, gosh, actually, it doesn't even matter if it turns out good or bad. If I just knew, you know, I could prepare for it. Anxiety is at the very heart of the human experience. And even though we have remarkable drugs that can help and, and therapies that can relieve our experience of anxiety, that, that underlying cause remains. It, it, it doesn't go away. The future's out there. We don't know it. It's not in my control. I think it's striking that into that experience, into that reality, the Bible says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. But, but here's the kicker about it. It says, don't be anxious, not because you know the future, but because you know the one who does. We've started, we just started last week, a new series in the Old Testament book of Daniel. We're calling it Who's in Charge Around Here? And this morning in Daniel chapter 2, we're going to meet a very anxious absolute monarch. And the irony shouldn't be lost on us because, like, absolute monarchs in the ancient Near East, they were in control of everything. <laughs> Like, they, anything they wanted to happen, they could just say, and it kind of happened. And yet, we've got a really anxious, absolute monarch on our hands. Now, as we consider what Daniel has to say to him this morning, I want you to consider what it would mean for you to know the God of the heavens, the God who is in charge of the history of the earth. So turn with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Uh, we've got Bibles in the pews and the chairs around you. They're black. You can open it up. Daniel chapter 2 is found on page 782. 782. 
I'm going to start by reading just the first three verses to kind of set the scene. Daniel chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 to 3. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him, and sleep deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the magicians, mediums, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream and am anxious to understand it. All right, that's where the chapter starts. It is the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. It's actually the third year as the Israelites count it, the the Babylonians and the Israelites kind of counted king's reigns differently. Um, so, so the point is, it's around 603 BC. And we are at the end of the three years of training that we saw Daniel and his friends were going to go through uh, last week. They've completed that, and they have really just begun attending the king, probably as like low-level advisors, because they're newbies, right? All right, so it's in that context that old Neb, King Neb, has a dream, and he's troubled. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we know from outside sources, uh, actually contemporaneous sources that archaeologists have discovered, we know that Nebuchadnezzar was a deeply religious man. He believed in the gods. He prayed to the gods. He was a very religious man. And he believed that the gods spoke to men through dreams, particularly spoke to kings through dreams. So he's anxious. He's had a dream. And he is anxious to know what this one means. He he summons his wise men, who are kind of variously called different things, but they're known as the Chaldeans. So, So he summons his wise men to find out what the gods have to say to him. And that sets up what I think is the main argument of this chapter, what this chapter is meant to convince us of. And it's this. We'll put it on the screen. God has revealed his plans to us, his people, so that the nations would know God. God has revealed his plans to us, his people, in this case to Daniel, so that the nations would know God. Now, let me just remind you where we are in the book of Daniel. We'll put a a slide up there that we put up last week. Uh, I, I mentioned that the book of Daniel divides into half. We're in the first half of it. And this section that we're in is really a section that, that is making the point over and over again that God has a message to the nations, and it's going to come through his people. And chapter 2 really kicks that off. God has revealed his plans to us so that the nations might know God. Because here's the thing, right? It's knowing God not the future, that relieves our anxiety. But anxiety or not, it's knowing God that must be the most important thing about our lives. We're going to walk through chapter 2. It's a long chapter. I'm going to read all of it in steps. We're going to walk through it in four steps as kind of the story unfolds, and it's a dramatic story. We're going to start first with a skeptic's anxiety. Then we're going to look at the believer's confidence Third, we're going to look at God's plans. And fourth, the nation's response. So the skeptic's anxiety, the believer's confidence, God's plans, the Lord's plans, and the nation's response. And as we do this, I want you to consider what difference it would make in your life personally if you knew the God who controls the future, including your future. All right, so let's start 
with the skeptic's anxiety. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him and sleep deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the magicians, mediums, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream and am anxious to understand it. The Chaldeans spoke to the king. And Aramaic begins here, right? This, this, this section that's aimed at the nations because that's the language that the nations speak. We, we switch from Hebrew to Aramaic. They say, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, My word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a garbage dump. But if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you'll receive gifts, a reward, and great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. They answered a second time, may the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will make known the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain you are trying to gain some time, because you see that my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream, there is one decree for you. You have conspired to tell me something false or fraudulent until the situation changes. So tell me the dream, and I will know you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king, No one on earth can make known what the king requests. Consequently, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked anything like this of any magician, medium, or Chaldean. What the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. Because of this, the king became violently angry and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. The decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed And they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute them. All right, so this this is where it all begins. Nebuchadnezzar wants his spiritual advisors to explain the dream. They respond pretty understandably. Well, tell us the dream, and we'll explain the dream to you. We'll give you the interpretation. Kind of business as usual. Uh, Maybe this has even happened before for them. But this time, Nebuchadnezzar is skeptical. Why? Why? Why why, why do we know that? Well, it's there in his reply in verse 5. The king replied to the Chaldeans, My word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, it's going to go bad for you. Like, the the penalty for failure at this moment is extreme. They're going to be dismembered. Disgrace is going to be heaped upon their families for all future generations because their ancestral land, their homes, will be turned into garbage pits. On the other hand, the reward is equally extreme, riches, advancement, public honor. Now, some people think that maybe at this moment, Nebuchadnezzar has had the experience that we've all had, which is you have a dream and you wake up and you just can't remember it. They think he's forgotten his dream. I don't think that's what's going on here. Look at verse 8. The king replied, I know for certain you're trying to gain some time because you see that my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream, there is one decree for you. You've conspired to tell me something false or fraudulent until the situation changes. So tell me the dream, and I will know you can give me its interpretation. You see, if he tells them the dream, well, they can make up whatever interpretation they want 
And he has no way of testing whether their interpretation is true. He's got no way of falsifying what they say. It's a strikingly modern, kind of rational, post-enlightenment sort of response. He needs supernatural revelation. He knows that's what he needs. He, he, he needs the meaning of the dream that he thinks came from the gods. He needs to know that the meaning of that dream has also come from heaven. But, but how can he know if revelation that somebody says to him, how can he know it's trustworthy? How could he test it? How could he know it's true? Well, he responds with a very rational test of what in the end is something that's supernatural, right? He, he, he says, basically, tell me the dream first, and then I can be confident. Then I can know that you've given me an interpretation that comes from heaven. Because I know what I dreamed. If you know what I dreamed, mm, the gods have revealed it. Which means I can probably trust that the gods have revealed the interpretation. Now, the Chaldeans are, they're aghast, right? They, they say in verse 10, like, no one can do this. No one on earth, verse 10, can make known what the king requests. It's impossible, they say. And everyone knows it's impossible. They go on to say, everybody knows that this is the way it is. That's why no king, despite all of his power, has ever asked this kind of, made, made this kind of request of his advisors. You, you don't ask people to do the impossible. They go on to say, look, only, only the gods can do this. And they don't dwell with mortals. I mean, they're basically saying to the king, 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 hey, calm down. This is not how the religious advisor game works. You're like changing the rules on us midstream. It's an extraordinary admission that they're really not who they claim to be. And I think that's exactly why Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar makes his demand. He genuinely believes that a divine message has been sent to him. He suspects that this message probably really matters for his own life, and yet he suspects that the religion that he's been offered is just a game, and he's not playing games. When his religious counselors can't come through for him, he orders the execution of all of them, not just the ones that were standing right there in front of him, but the entire class of Chaldeans, of religious advisors, and that included Daniel and his friends who we met in chapter one. So let me just pause here and just and ask, can, can you relate to old Neb here? I, I can. I, I mean, perhaps you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, and yet you suspect that there's something more to this life. You suspect that there's there's transcendence, that, that, that there's meaning to this universe and to this life. But, but everywhere you turn, when, when you try to understand that meaning, all you encounter is like religion and religious talk. Talk about other people's religious experience, talk about their intuitions, talk about, about their opinions, and all of a sudden you begin to realize 
that if I'm going to look to religion and religious talk to understand the meaning of the universe and the world and my own life, well, it's all just circular. How, how How can I know? And you very quickly realize that what you need more than anything else is revelation. You need God to speak from heaven. But how can you know for sure that the words that are presented, when someone else comes and claims this is revelation from God, how can you know for sure that it really is? Well, how about Nebuchadnezzar's test? How about that person doing something that only the gods could do? That's what Nebuchadnezzar demanded. It's not a bad test, actually. So, so I just kind of want to put it to you. Are you happy to just remain in your sense of, well, no one can really know, and continue to go along your way? Or are you willing to consider and maybe even set for yourself some criteria that if the criteria are met, you'll know that must be God speaking and I need to listen to it? Are are you willing to set a test that you'll hold yourself accountable to? Well, that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. And that's the skeptic's anxiety. It's an anxiety that is shared by, I think, many around the world today, and perhaps many in this room today. But the story keeps moving. This is really just setting up the problem. So let's move on, second, to the believer's confidence, the believer's confidence. We're going to pick it up in verse 14, Daniel chapter 2, verse 14. Then Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Arioch, the king's officer, why is the decree from the king so harsh? Well, now there's an understatement. (laughs) Then Arioch explained the situation to Daniel. So Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and told his friends, Hananiah, Misael, and Azariah about the matter, urging them to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. And Daniel praised the God of the heavens and declared, may the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers, because you have given me wisdom and power. And now you have let me know what we asked of you, for you have let us know the king's mystery." Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came and said to him, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will give him the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. The king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? 
Daniel answered the king, no wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the visions that came into your mind as you lay in bed were these. Your majesty, while you were in your bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. So we'll stop there. The contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel is stark, right? right? So, so while, while old Neb is, is anxious and volatile and angry and ready to kill everybody, Daniel is calm. He, he speaks to the captain of the guard, we're told there in verse 14, with discretion and tact. He, he then, like, actually goes to the king, who just ordered his execution. He goes to the king personally to ask for more time so that he can give the interpretation. Talk about confidence. And then what does he do? He goes home, calls his friends together, tells them to, to ask the God of the heavens to reveal the mystery, and then apparently he goes to bed. Why is Daniel so confident? I mean, there's, there's not a trace of worry. There, there's urgency. He, he understands that an edict has been put out for his execution. So time is of the essence. There's urgency. But you just don't get a hint of worry in him. No, he goes home. And either in his sleep, or maybe just lying there on his bed in the dark... God gives him a vision, and that vision reveals the mystery. You see that there in verse 19. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. Why was Daniel so calm and confident? I don't think his confidence was in his ability. You know, we were told in chapter 1 that he had been given the ability to, to, with visions and, and dreams. I don't think his confidence is in his ability because as far as we know, this is the first time he displays that ability. I, I, don't, I don't really think that his confidence is in his piety. There's nothing in the text that suggests that, that because he's been so faithful back in chapter one that God's going to save his life. And, and he didn't know in advance, like he doesn't know what's going to happen. Daniel doesn't know the future. Now, why is Daniel so confident? I think the text makes it really clear. Daniel knows the one who does know the future. He knows the Lord, whom he calls the God of the heavens, the, the one who is above it all and in control of all things. I think that's the point of his prayer in verses 20 to 23, which I mean, structurally, and I'm not going to go into this, in many ways is the climax of the whole chapter. It's the high point of the chapter. Now, I find that interesting because if this were a Hollywood movie, and this would make a great movie, for all I know, it has been made into a movie. Some of you will tell me afterwards if there's a great Daniel movie out there. But if Hollywood were going to make this into a movie, 
we would now have like this, this long scene with, with Daniel wrestling in prayer, pleading for his life, building up the tension of, is he going to be saved or is he going to be saved? I mean, because that's where the, the dramatic tension of the story is, but it is just like not what the author is interested in. It, the, the narrator skips over that. He gives us one sentence. Oh, yeah, and then, then, then it was real to him. And, and instead, all the emphasis is put... On, on this prayer, Daniel praises God, who he says possesses all wisdom and power, who, who establishes kings and throws them down, who, who changes the seasons, who, who gives wisdom and reveals mysteries as he pleases to whom he pleases. Implicit in Daniel's prayer is, is the recognition that God did not have to reveal the mystery to Daniel. God didn't have to do anything, but he did do it. He did reveal the mystery to Daniel because he's not just the God of the heavens, the one who is above all and knows all things and is in control of all things, but also because, you see there in verse 23, he is the God of his fathers. It's a remarkably intimate name for God, and it only shows up right there in kind of the center of this whole passage. The God who controls everything. The, the God who is in charge of history and knows all and is moving all things to his ends is at the same time the God of his fathers, the God who made a promise to Abraham and his descendants to love them. The source of Daniel's confidence is his knowledge of the promise-making and promise-keeping God. Now, Daniel explains all of this to the king. He, he, he tells Nebuchadnezzar that his advisors were right. You see that there in verse 27, no one, no human being is, is able to do what the king asked, but, verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he revealed it to Daniel. Not, as Daniel says in verse 30, because he has more wisdom than anyone else, but so that the king might know what will happen in the last days. Daniel knew this God, and this is where his confidence lay. Christian, the main point of this chapter is not the moral example of Daniel. You're basically not going to hear me say through this whole series, dare to be a Daniel. Okay, I just said it. But that's, that's like never going to be the point. The, the, the main point of this is not that we need to be like Daniel and his moral example. That said, we shouldn't ignore his example either. Daniel was marked by calm confidence before God answered his prayer. Daniel was marked by calm confidence before he even knew why the king was so angry at him and wanted him dead. Daniel's confidence was not that he knew in advance that everything was going to turn out okay. It wasn't because he had a full grasp of the situation and was so wise. His confidence wasn't because he was a court insider and had the king's ear. No, his confidence was that he knew God. He knew 
that the God of the heavens who is in control of everything is also his God, the covenant God, who has sworn an eternal oath of eternal love to his people, an oath that will not and cannot be broken. Christian, it's so easy to be anxious about the things that we cannot control. And there are a lot of those things. Yeah, now some of them don't matter too much, but some of them really do matter. Daniel reminds us that we don't need to know the future. We don't need to know how everything is going to turn out in order to be people who are characterized by calm confidence rather than anxiety. To be a Christian is to be someone who knows that God is both Lord, high above everything, controlling everything, and Father, who tenderly loves His children. Christian, do you want to be less anxious? Or That's a silly question. Of course you want to be less anxious. Who of us that experience anxiety doesn't want to be free of that anxiety? Well, let me be clear. There's, there's a place for medicine because some of what we experience in anxiety actually has a kind of a biological thing that's going on. So there's a place for medicine. There's, there's a place for counseling, which can be really helpful for us. But do not forget that there's nothing more important as you deal with your own anxiety than growing in your intimacy with the Lord who loves you, knowing that the Lord loves you, that that, that He's your Father. What does Peter say to, to a group of Christians in the first century who are being actively persecuted? What does he say to them? He says, cast your cares on Him because He cares about you. Christian, God cares about you. He's proven it at the cross. He's demonstrated it beyond a shadow of a doubt at the cross. He died for you while you were yet sinners, which means He cares for you now while you are still sinners. He doesn't just care for you when you do the right thing, when you make all the best and wisest decisions, when when you've got your act together. No, He cares about you always. Always He loves you. The, the, The more anxious you are, I think actually the more He's attracted to you. Just like as a father, when I see my child in distress, I'm drawn to them. I'm not repelled by them. Oh, Christian, that's the Lord. He has drawn to you, even in the weakness of your anxiety. He cares for you. So cast your care on Him. Now, as I said, the point of this narrative is not Daniel's anxiety. It's just to remind you, it's that we've been given a message God has revealed his plans to us so that the nations would know God. 
I, I think the, the evidence of that is in, in part because the single longest section of this whole chapter is the narrative that's devoted to the king's dream and, and laying out God's plan. Daniel just told us that God gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream so that he might know what will happen in the future, verse 28. He said that he revealed it to Daniel, not to save Daniel's life, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king, verse 30. So, so here's the question. Why does the king need to know the future if we don't? I've just said we don't need to know the future to be confident. Daniel didn't need to know the future to be confident. Why does the king need to know the future? Let's take a look third at God's plan. God's plan. We're going to pick it up in verse 31. Daniel is explaining the dream. Your majesty, as you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay, and crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you the king, now we will tell the king its interpretation. The God of the heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Wherever people live or wild animals or birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to yours. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. A fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything. And like iron that smashes, it will crush and smash all the others. You saw the feet and toes, partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay and that the toes of the feet were partly from iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong and part will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another but will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with fired clay. In the days of those kings... The God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain, and its interpretation reliable." All right, so the dream's pretty straightforward. Uh, A terrifying colossal statue made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. The statue shatters when it's struck by a stone that, that wasn't broken off by any human hand. The statue is ground to dust and blown away, but the stone then grows and fills the whole world like a mountain, which in the symbolism of, of the ancient Near East is, is the symbolism of, of sovereignty, of kingdom. 
That's verses 31 to 35. Now, if Daniel had been wrong, the king would have said, wrong, that was not the dream, you're all dead. But you notice the narrative keeps going. That was the dream. And so, Daniel now explains what the dream meant. Each part of the statue represents a successive world empire, with Nebuchadnezzar being the the head of gold, the, the king of kings, ruler over them all. And Daniel says that after you're gone, an inferior empire is going to arise, and then and then another, and, and another, until one finally comes that is represented by iron mixed with clay. That kingdom, that empire, Daniel describes a little bit more. It, it will be incredibly strong because iron crushes everything, but also brittle because of the clay. And, and he explains that, that that symbolizes that in that kingdom, there are going to be various peoples all mixed together, but they're not going to hold. And then he goes on to say, that in the days of that empire, that last, the fourth of the empires, the God of the heavens would set up his own kingdom, represented by that stone that was not broken off by human hands. That kingdom would never be succeeded by another. It would never be handed off to someone else. No, instead, that kingdom is going to bring all other kingdoms to an end. And Daniel concludes, the great God has told the king what will happen in the future, in the last days. The dream is certain, and its interpretation reliable. Verse 45. All right, well, there you have it. You now know the dream and its interpretation, too, and everything's clear, right? Well, okay. With the benefit of hindsight, and we need to remember we're looking back They're standing there looking forward into the future. We're looking back with the benefit of hindsight and a little bit of Old Testament knowledge. It's not hard to make sense of the dream. The Babylonian Empire would be succeeded by the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, we're going to see that happen at the very end of the book of Daniel when King Cyrus comes. And then that's going to be followed by the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great. And then finally, the Roman Empire an incredibly strong empire, but an empire that would be divided, as he describes here, and eventually fall. Now, here's the first thing I think we need to just consider about that. Now that I've kind of explained what everybody agrees those different parts of the statue referred to. Nebuchadnezzar didn't need to know any of that in order to breathe a sigh of relief. You know, you know when he breathes a sigh of relief, when, when, when he feels all of his anxiety subside, it, it's when he hears Daniel say, after you, an inferior kingdom will arise. Oh, it's not going to happen to me. It's after me. I mean, I think at that moment, Nebuchadnezzar is not feeling anxious anymore. He's, he's safe. God had made him the head of gold and Yeah, once he's gone, once he dies and is gone, there'll be other empires that come, and maybe his sons won't be able to hold the empire, but that's not his problem. That's somebody else's problem. And I think what that tells us is that God's purpose in sending the dream and in sending Daniel to explain the dream was not 
to relieve Nebuchadnezzar of his anxiety. God's purpose was to reveal his plan through Daniel so that Nebuchadnezzar, the the mightiest king in the world at the time, the, the, the one who kind of represented all of the Gentile nations, that that mighty king would know that there was a God in heaven who was going to establish a kingdom even greater than Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. In other words, this interpretation comes to Nebuchadnezzar not simply as a, as a warning, though there are elements of warning here, but as an invitation. Nebuchadnezzar, there's someone greater than you. There's going to be a kingdom greater than yours. You should want to be in that kingdom. How is God going to establish this greater kingdom? Well, Daniel tells us he's going to do it through a stone not cut by human hands. It's a strange image. Until we begin to realize, this is where the Old Testament knowledge comes in handy, God has been using this image of a a stone or a rock to describe his saving rule over his people and over the nations since almost the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 24, the tribe of Jacob is blessed by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, by the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. In Psalm 118, God's anointed king, the the king that is going to deliver God's people, is described as the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The prophet Isaiah would pick up this same imagery of the stone, and in chapter 8 of Isaiah, would explain to us that this stone would be divisive. Some would find in this stone a sanctuary, but others would find this stone to be a stumbling block and a point of offense. Daniel, coming at the end of all of those, later than all those other authors, reveals that this stone would be the king who established God's kingdom forever. Who is that king? Well, 600 years after Daniel's prophecy, Jesus of Nazareth was born in a backwater of the Roman Empire to a virgin in fulfillment of another one of Isaiah's prophecies. As a man, Jesus declared that the kingdom of God had come, and he demonstrated that he was bringing that kingdom by all the miracles that he performed. But just as the psalmist had predicted, Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders of the very people that he came to save. In in Luke chapter 20, Jesus confronts those religious leaders and their rejection of the Messiah, and he tells this parable against them, and they're appalled. They're like, no way, we would never reject God's king when God sends him. And he responds with the simple question, then what is the meaning of the Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And they could not answer. Jesus claimed to be that stone. The stone of Genesis 49 and Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8 and Daniel 2. And his words were confirmed when those same leaders proved him right 
and handed him over to the Romans to be crucified and buried just a few days after he said it. Of course, if that's all we knew, this would all still be enigma and confusing. But Jesus actually explained what his death meant before he died. Jesus wasn't going to the cross as a martyr. No, Jesus went to the cross as a substitute, as a ransom for all who would repent of their sins and put their faith in him. Jesus explained that that his death would accomplish the salvation of many and would actually establish the kingdom of God kingdom that would continue to grow until it filled the whole world. And in fact, when you go on to read the book of Acts, that's kind of what we see. We see the book of Acts recounting the growth of God's kingdom, not as a political kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. As more and more people from all sorts of ethnicities and places began to declare that Jesus is Lord. And the fact that you're sitting here today listening to this message is proof, I think, that indeed the kingdom of God, not as a political kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom, has reached the very ends of the earth. It is hard to get further away from Jerusalem than Portland, Oregon. So here's the question. Why should you believe this message from heaven about Jesus? Why should you believe it? I would suggest to you that you should believe it for the same reason that Nebuchadnezzar believed Daniel. Daniel did the impossible. He revealed the dream without Nebuchadnezzar telling him what it was. Friends, Jesus did something even more impossible, if you'll excuse the grammar. Three days after his crucifixion and burial, Jesus got up from the dead. He got up from the dead by his own power and by the will of God and was witnessed by hundreds of people. Now, to paraphrase the Chaldean advisors, that is so difficult that no one can do that except God, whose dwelling is not with mortals. Oh, but friends, here's the good news of the gospel. God has come down in the person of Jesus Christ to dwell with mortals like you and me. He's done the impossible, dying and rising again of his own power so that you might be rescued, not just from the anxiety of your life, but from the brokenness of it, from the guiltiness of it, that that you might know for certain that the message of the gospel is indeed certain and its interpretation is reliable. Friend, if you're not a Christian, this is the message that God has sent from heaven, not in a dream, but in flesh and blood and history. Today is the day to hear that message and to believe it and believing it to trust it, because this message comes to you as an invitation to be a part of God's kingdom. I'd love to talk to you more about this. You get to hear about it a little bit at the end of our service here in just a few moments as we celebrate a baptism. 
And we get to hear the testimony of, of uh, Abram uh, as he identifies with Christ and Christ's death for him. We'd love to talk to you about what it would look like, what would need to happen for you to be baptized as well. Well, all of this leads finally and briefly to the nation's response. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell face down, worshiped Daniel, and gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. The king said to Daniel, your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. And then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to manage the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. You know, our passage began with Nebuchadnezzar filled with anxiety, with his advisors trembling before him, explaining that only the gods could do what he asked and they couldn't do it. It ends with Nebuchadnezzar prostrate before Daniel, confessing your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries since you were able to reveal this mystery. Notice Nebuchadnezzar's response. He confesses that Daniel's God is above all others. Now, I don't think Nebuchadnezzar has become a believer at this point. He's not converted to Judaism. But he has begun a journey, a journey that we're going to watch over the next three chapters. He confesses that Daniel's God is above all. And notice why. It's not because he knows the plan. It's because Daniel was able to reveal it convincingly. And I think this is the final implication of this chapter for us, particularly for us as Christians, but also for those of you that are not Christians, and it comes together here. Why should you believe me? I've said that you should believe Jesus because he got up from the dead, but you're listening to me. You're not listening to Jesus. He's not here standing, talk, standing here talking to you in the flesh. You're, you're listening to me or you're listening to your friends or to, to your family that brought you. Why should you believe us? Well, here's what I want to say to you. Don't believe us because we're sincere. Don't believe us because we're nice. Don't believe us because it'd be nice to be in a community. Believe us for the same reason that Nebuchadnezzar believed Daniel. Daniel proved he had a message from God by doing the impossible. And friend, if you're not a Christian, I want to suggest to you that that is what the church is, including this local church. Proof that the message is impossible, that the message is true because the church which the message creates is impossible. It does not make sense by human standards. Look around. Just look around for a moment. See the other people that are here. What, what do you see? Do you see people who are all the same? 
Do, do you see people who all look alike, who are all into the same hobbies and activities and interests? No, that's not what you see. You see a group of people who love each other for no other reason than that they have Jesus Christ in common, and that's all they need to love one another. You see a group of people who are not related to each other biologically, who are, who are from different backgrounds and ethnicities. You, you see people who have different politics. They're not all going to vote for the same candidate come next November. You, you, you see people who have really different interests. Some people are really into camping, and some people who think that camping is, is like the second death. Right? This is not a group of people that have a bunch of stuff in common. We're not a club. No, but it's a group of people who do the impossible every day, who love one another even when it's hard because we're not all easy to love, who, who forgive when we've been sinned against because we ourselves have been forgiven. People, people who, who own up to their sins and repent rather than just make excuses. People who are willing to serve each other and get nothing in return. In short, as you look around at this church, I want to tell you what you see. What you see is Christ in us, being formed in us by the Holy Spirit of God who dwells in us because Jesus Christ got up from the dead, ascended to heaven, and now reigns at the right hand of the Father. This is why Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 calls the church, this, this ragtag group of people that is not much to look at by human standards, but Paul calls the church the display of the wisdom of God. It is through the impossibility of the church that the mystery of Christ that we proclaim is made visible through the love of Christ that we practice. And so, Christian, understand this is why you're here. This is why God didn't just whisk you off to heaven the moment he saved you. This is why we are here. God has revealed his plans in and through Jesus Christ to us, but it turns out it's through us because we're the plan. We're the preachers of the plan that declares the love of Christ and invites the nations in. We are the demonstration that the plan is certain as our lives are transformed and God's rule, God's kingdom takes root in our hearts. We are the proof that the plan is reliable as we do the impossible through the power of the Holy Spirit, living resurrection lives of Christ-like love that the world cannot explain except that Jesus must have gotten up from the dead. So Christian, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. You not only know the Father. As Jesus said, you know the Father's plan because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. He delights to make you the kingdom. 
Brothers and sisters here at Henson, let us be that kingdom. Not politically. Be done with all that political stuff. It's not doing the gospel any favors. Let us be that kingdom spiritually. In, in, in a love that is visible, displaying it to the world so that the nations would know God. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that indeed you would make your plan known through us, that, that when the world looks at the church, it wouldn't see just another organization or institution or certainly not a club, but that it would see something that it cannot explain without recourse to the supernatural reality that, that, that Jesus got up from the dead and changes sinners. Lord, we pray that you would do this work in us so that many here in Portland, that many around the world, that some even today would know that you are God. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.